how can I change adult learning? If I'm a classroom teacher, how do I change the way my desks are arranged? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm a student, how are the ways that I show up? And so we've been playing with educators and students thinking about what are the small grain experiments that you can make within your classroom, your school, that are going to slowly advance you more toward your aspiration. This is Designing for Humanity, a podcast by SY Partners about designing a future that's made for all of us and the best in us. I'm Rhi Norgard, and I'm talking with some of the most interesting people I know about how we as designers can tackle the most complex challenges our society faces right now. How can we use design to reimagine the ways we interact with each other and with the world? I'm here to start the conversation about what new ways of thinking and methods are needed. Today I'm here with Laura McBain, who's the co-director of the K-12 lab at the Stanford D School. I've been really interested in the labs for a while and the work that they're doing there to disrupt inequity in education by experimenting with new design models. Prior to joining the D-School, Laura helped found High Tech High, a nonprofit charter aimed at applying design thinking to primary and secondary education. Laura's been a teacher, a principal, and a coach, and she's spent the last 10 years thinking about how people connect in the world. I'm really excited to explore Laura's ideas around redesigning education with all of you today. Welcome. Thank so, you. <laughs> so glad you could make it here. I'm going to start asking you if you see yourself as a designer. I know you you use design tools, mm-hmm. uh, but do you do you perceive yourself as as a designer? I'm starting to. I started out as a teacher in a comprehensive school down in the South Bay of San Diego. Then I became a principal. I worked at a charter school, and then I found myself in adult learning helping teachers and leaders think about how they restructure schools and systems and classrooms to help kids to really think about how they might design for more equitable systems in schools. And so when I went from, oh, I design classroom lesson plans, Mm -hmm. I design classroom experiences, then I got into what does it mean to like really think about designing a system around education. And I will say that I awkwardly and cheapishly still use the term designer because I'm I'm still figuring it out. A lot of my friends who are teachers, they call themselves, I'm just a teacher. Mm, I'm just a principal. I see. Right? They use that just as an adjective. And I feel like through my work and my experiences, I've had these opportunities to create something new, which is the process of design, iteration, adaptation, adoption, creation. And so I use that term now partly because I want to own it more, but then also I think there's something about what does it mean for teachers to call themselves designers Mm -hmm. and for principals to call themselves designers? Because there's something about liberation and agency and power in that, that you say, I am designing this, which means I actually have some power over how this is going to go. That's fascinating. It's great to hear, and I absolutely agree with you. So tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing at the K-12 through Labs. What's the type of work that you're doing, and who are you working with? So the K-12 through Lab at the Stanford uh-huh. D School is really a place about modeling and cultivating experiments to unleash the creative confidence in educators 
for them to reimagine education to ensure that students who are furthest from opportunity receive the best resource? How do we close the opportunity gaps for kids? And we use a lot of different experiences and experiments to try to figure that out. So our work spans a lot of different things. We run a program called School Retool, which has about 23 cohorts around the country of principals who are slowly designing experiments within their school settings to reimagine education, to advance closer to equity and equitable schools. We also train people in discover design thinking. What is design thinking and how does it work? And currently we have about 60 people at the Stanford D School today who are learning about what does it mean to become a designer? And then we also have different types of experiences with schools around the country and the world who are trying to think about how they use design to reimagine how their school functions and really how they might help their teachers create the mindsets and behaviors of designers. We want teachers to be able to do something on Monday to start becoming a designer as Max and Green says, we're always in the process of becoming. Mm-hmm. And then we also want to play in this other system level space. Education hasn't changed for a hundred years. It's an industrial system. We have to change it. And so we're playing in new experiments around the funding models, testing, leadership, machine learning. What are the areas that we want to experiment on that are really around the purpose of education and how do we impact the system the most to really think about what the new purpose and what the future purpose of education will be and continue to be in the future. I love that. Are you thinking about educators or children here or both? I think you look at it from both sides. Both sides. In your work. I think sometimes we think that the learning that educators need is different than the learning that students need. Mm. I've always thought that we should be doing the same type of learning experience that we do with adults as we do with students. And obviously content might be different and there's some scaffolding that changes, but we really should be modeling the type of learning experiences that we aspire to see in classrooms with the adults that we're working with. If I'm teaching folks how to use design thinking in their classrooms and they want to do that with their students, they probably should experience it themselves, right? So that they can actually internalize the process and be able to really facilitate it with their students as opposed to read it up on the website and now go do it. That's not a process for learning. So how do we make the adult learning experiential or modeling the practices we want to see in schools? And is one of the ways to design with children rather than for them, do that also in that process? Absolutely. School? Yeah. I think in any design you want to be designing with, rather, mm-hmm. I think any Content IRA, we're always designing with folks, not for folks. So that is always a fun process. Uh, (laughs) Give me an example. What does that look like when you're designing with children? One of my favorite examples, this was actually when I was working at Hazard High, is we had an elementary school that we built the school in kind of in a valley. And so when the school opened, the property had a lot of fun creatures that had been displaced because just as you build new buildings and there might be some rats or mice and preachers that live there. And so in this particular school, when they did this, they were having a lot of mice coming into the school. So it became this design challenge of how might we actually protect our classroom and how might we create a space where rodents are not coming into the Mm -hmm. classroom. So they did research. They had a challenge, which actually felt real to them because they were seeing rodent droppings in their classroom, which is not good. And they ended up creating owl boxes because they discovered through their research and prototyping that owls are a great predator for mice. 
Right. So they built that. Young students did that. That one I love because it's so tangible. Yes. And yes. it's accessible for young Miserable. students. Yeah. yeah. And they just completely. did it. Yeah. Completely. So I'm going to go back to asking you about your work at the D school and um, the K through 12 lab that you're in. What does a day look mm-hmm. like for you? A day in the life. <laughs> a Monday. Or yeah. A Tuesday. <laughs> well, one thing every day is very different. Uh-huh. And so this past week, what we did on Monday is we mapped out the educational system. So we took a massive whiteboard and given our knowledge and other things that we know about the field, what's happening in the educational ecosystem. And then from there, we thought about what are the big challenges facing education? What are the topics that people aren't researching yet? What would we want to focus on? And what are some of the things that we're not thinking about Mm. or that design education community is not thinking about? A couple of areas we're playing with right now is, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning. Mm-hmm. How does that impact the way schools function? One of the questions we brought up this past week is blockchain. Can we change the currency with validity in schools using blockchain, particularly around documenting the experiences that students have in and outside of school? And how does that change what a transcript looks like? It's happening. We know kids are having these experiences, yet they don't get documented the way the current system is designed. So what would that do? And then we're looking at how do we really reimagine assessment? So one of the experiments we have been working on more recently is looking at creative and collaborative problem solving. Currently in education, we have the Common Core. We've got these big state tests. And while some of them, I think, are more advancing in application of content, they don't often measure probably the skills that really matter most, which is how do we communicate? How do we solve complex problems with others? Mm. How do we apply creative thinking Mm -hmm. to these things? So we did a wild experimentation process. We got really interested in escape rooms. So we went to a couple of... Yeah. And a lot of us (laughs) in my team are kind of super nerds. Uh And so we went into these escape rooms. And if you don't know about escape rooms and puzzle rooms, you get about 50 minutes an hour Uh to solve, if you're fast, maybe shorter than that, Uh uh, (laughs) to solve a series of maybe linear or nonlinear puzzles in a collaborative way. Mm -hmm. And so we found it intriguing and fascinating that when you walked into these rooms, you have this like short amount of time. And you really have to rely on other people in Mm -hmm. that room to Mm -hmm. solve the problem. So we got really excited. We ran some conference workshops. And then we took a 1997 Frito-Lay track and turned (laughs) it into a mobile escape room. (laughs) We call it Puzzle Bus Mm -hmm. (laughs) that we're taking now to schools for teachers and students to experience this. And then what we're creating currently is a set of toolkits around how they might really understand collaborative problem-solving when students are working in teams. So we're trying to take a different approach to what collaboration looks like, which is very fun, but also trying to put something new into the field as opposed to a group evaluation or a test or a rubric, because there is some research that we know from design teams that we're applying. So teams that are constructed with multiple people from different perspectives are great. We know that teams that are cohesive and use deep reasoning are really productive design teams. So how does that theory apply to group work in schools? Mm -hmm. And so we've been trying to test out concepts using the escape rooms for schools. But there's another element in that design, which is the experience and the messaging around 
using a narrative and a language and, and the mm-hmm. picture, quite frankly, of a bus and an escape room, right? <laughs> Which is, is something that's exciting and yeah. that, that it, it is in the vernacular. It's an entertainment uh-huh. Uh-huh. to make that connection mm-hmm. immediate. Mm-hmm. And that's another aspect of design. It's how you tell the story and right. how you get people to connect yeah. um, emotionally. I think that's great. It makes me think... This idea of education as a very big system onto itself and then the ability to create experiments and change on a classroom level and how we feel disempowered and how hard it is to think about a total system and to your point of I am just my role. I don't conceive of myself as someone that can think outside of my silo necessarily, but If I'm someone whose job it is to do that, then I will see myself differently and I will act differently. How do you manage thinking about the system of education and making really tangible ways for for teachers and students in classrooms at the same time? I think that like if we back up, we think about the system of education and I think it often feels like this big aircraft carrier. I can't move it. Because it's all this massive juggernaut. What we've been trying to work on with educators and students and superintendents and principals is what is within their locus of control? Because they may not be able to change the funding process, although you can. But what are the levers that they can play on within their structure, within their locus? Whether it's a principal, how can I change adult learning? If I'm a classroom teacher, how do I change the way my desks are arranged? Mm -hmm. Or if I'm a student, how are the ways that I show up? And so we've been playing with educators and students thinking about what are the small grain experiments that you can make within your classroom, your school, that are going to slowly advance you more toward your aspiration. Because once you start doing that, the change process is not something I'm initiating. It becomes a collective aspiration Mm -hmm. that we get to do. Mm-hmm. And then you start getting other people involved where it becomes a shared vision of change as opposed to we're all doing this new initiative starting next year and you must do this as opposed to, hey, I've got this experiment I want to run around implementing curation in schools mm-hmm. and I want to show student work all over the walls. Does someone want to take just this hallway with me and play in that space? It's not... A mandate. It's not a charge. It's not one big extra thing that I have to do. So you talk about understanding and creating strategies for dealing with inequity in education. And what does that look like on a classroom level? So there's two things that I think are kind of fun and ways to get started. And I think about who has voice in the classroom. So how are you making sure that every kid is heard each day in your classroom? When we're thinking about inequities, we think about system inequities, which are true and real, and they're there, and we can't ignore them. But as a teacher, I can make sure that I can hear their voice every day, or I can hear their thinking. So how are the ways in which I'm encouraging voice in my classroom through small pair shares, through small instructional practices that elevate voice in the classroom? The other one that I've that I think is pretty powerful is we've been playing with an experimentation that's about two years now called Shadow a Student. This encourages educators to take the day and walk in the shoes of a student. Mm. It is definitely an equity exercise mm-hmm. because you learn what inequities yep. are in your school. That one has been really fascinating because educators and teachers get to know what it feels like to be a student today. And the insights that they bring back 
are fascinating, not just how school is functioning, but how are students being treated? There was a teacher in one of our cohorts that she was playing with who the child was never spoken to that day. For an entire day. For an entire day. Right. So what's happening there? Yeah. Or there was a student who felt ostracized or didn't get to go to the bathroom all day. Where do they sit at lunchtime? But it actually reveals the inequities that occur within classrooms because if a student isn't spoken to all day, I have no idea how you reach that student. Then I have my design challenge. So really not delegating understanding. Mm -hmm. I'm sure there are so many more examples where we assume with our role in the system, we our assumptions are not really matching Mm -hmm. the reality of the people around us and especially children who's perspective and purview is naturally quite different. So it's an awesome example of that. You know, we also spend time thinking about what does safe space look like in Mm -hmm. schools, given the current climate we're in and with students. I'd love for you to talk about Yeah. I mean, we did a brainstorm yesterday of what does it look like for schools to be safe places for students to show up. We have lockdowns, drills across every school Mm because it's a real challenge. And yet we also know that we may or may not have the capacity to change some of the policy levels at the national and federal level. But how do we ensure that students are seen and heard? And what are the ways in which we can find the kids who are struggling the most and support them in schools? And so there's lots of ways that we can play within this space about, you know, there are students that show signs. And oftentimes these are left in files. We don't know this information. Can we digitize this information? Can we ensure that students have another adult to talk to? And so we have some predictors about gun violence in schools. We know this. There is stuff out there. And so how can we redesign the system so that we can help the students who need it most so that these tragedies don't have to happen? And so the way that you're talking about it, it's both a could be their technology solution and there's a human connection and capacity solution. Is there also a a spatial solution? Absolutely. I mean, I imagine, you know, that's where my mind goes. It's like, how do we design environments where people can actually see each other better and understand what's going on just on that level of presence? Absolutely. I mean, you can figure out how you reconvene space and schools for people to find that. I did some work in Chicago for a long time and we reimagined the entryway. Tell me about that. Students coming in to have to go through a security detector, go through their backpacks. And I I thought, you know, going into that school, I'm like, wow, it feels like a prison. It feels like, why do I need to do this? And so what are the ways that we can reimagine the space? And there were subtle things we did. Let's paint the space. There's certain requirements we can't get rid of. There has to be a detector. I mean, that is just what the law in that district was. But we can ensure that the person who is actually doing that work knows every single kid by name and welcomes them and talks to them and gets a flag of, wow, this kid's having a bad day. What's going on here? And those are subtle. Mm. Those are small things. But just even one interaction of a student that's coming in, not because we need to check their backpack, but because they're showing up and they're showing up with a desolate look on their face That's the human connection that I think just redesigning how students enter into the building and who they interact first with and having that person who's aware enough to know, oh, this person is having, I mean, just the story I told you earlier of a child that wasn't spoken to all day. That happens in many schools. Yes. And yet maybe there's some potential. And again, these are the experiments we want to continue to run, but 
is there some potential about how students enter into school and who grades them and who sees them and how they're feeling? Is that a lever to really think about school safety? I'm not sure, but I think those are the questions we all want to keep wrestling with and experiment on and what can we learn. It feels really actionable. I mean, at least the experiment, right? Like Mm -hmm. you could really try and understand and and you could see if that that could work. That's a really powerful example. When we talk about the challenges that you're trying to solve, and they're massive, right? How do you remain positive? <laughs> What's your design <laughs> process? What's for that? I mean, yeah, I, when I yeah. talk to designers a lot, yeah. we talk a lot about how design is an act of service and you have to be optimistic somehow or yeah. because you have to believe that things are changeable mm-hmm. and that you can take a part of that. Do you consider yourself <laughs> an optimistic designer in your in your practice or an optimistic person? I or? definitely am. I think all of my friends would say you're a super positive. Like that's definitely a trait that I carry with me. So we had this conversation when we did our cartography two days ago and we were macking the system and we had a conversation yesterday and we talked just about this question and we looked at the wall and we're like, wow, there's a lot of big problems here. And it can feel overwhelming. We had this islands that we created and what does this look like? And and I and I advocated, I said, on every single one of these islands that we created on this wall, uh, there is someone doing great work. There's a school board member, there's a teacher, there's a parent, there's a principal that is doing the work that we want other schools and others to not only replicate, but aspire to. There are bright spots across education. I get renewed when I see people taking on the challenges that once they've learned something and they go back and do it, and then they come back and tell you, and you're like, oh, cool. You're doing that? That's how you get renewed. Because you see that it's given them their own agency, and then they're trying it, and then they replicate it, and then it ripples across. It's this whole conundrum of cyclical, like, empathy, positivity that comes back to you when you see people using the process in such a powerful way. And then you realize, like, that's when you know, and as designers, we know it's not about the tech. It's not about all this stuff. It's about the people doing it. And so one thing I want to do and we go forward in the lab is how do we document those stories Mm. and how do we showcase those stories? Because once you start doing that, then there's a whole body of people that just step up and say, oh, they did that. They look kind of like me or they did something I'm kind of interested and now I can do that. And so, yeah, I think that positivity has a ripple effect, right? Because if you inspire someone else and they inspire somebody else, then it all comes back to you. Yeah, aspiration and action. Thank you for that. I feel hopeful now. Thank you for coming today. It was so good to talk to you. Great. It was an honor. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely.